Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 82nd episode of the Not A Cast, titled The Stuff of Heroes, Part 1, an analysis of A Clash of Kings, Davos 1, in which the humbly born moral compass of Westeros bears witness to the ascension of gods, kings, and his uncertain fortunes. That, that is another part one, folks, in a completely unprecedented and surprising turn of events. We've had to split up another Dragonstone episode into two parts. It's not just our bias towards the characters, we swear. <laughs> These chapters really just are that dense and multifaceted and have just multiple scenes that are very distinct and different from one another and merit further discussion. So in this episode, we're going to be touching on the uh, great ceremony on the beach with Melisandre, Davos as a character in a POV, his scene with Salador San, and then next week we're going to be touching on his relationship with Stannis, Stannis' letter to the public declaring himself king, and of course that ever-emotional backstory info dump regarding the Windproud and Proudwing. And we're very excited to announce we will have the same guest on for both those episodes, the man who, uh, with his Stannis love, makes us look positively moderate on the subject, <laughs> our very own High Inquisitor, Frank B. Welcome to the Nauticast. Hello. Thank you, guys. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on this episode. Your listeners may have a different take. I suppose <laughs> I suppose the three of them who thought there was insufficient Stannis content on this year Not A Cast podcast are pretty happy. For the rest of you, I'd say I was sorry for what's about to happen, but perhaps starting off with a lie isn't the best idea for a Leal Stannerman. Well, we're excited to have you all the same, man. I think the, pe- I think the people are going to enjoy this one, having now read through all t- 250,000 words that you both have written on Stannis uh-huh. Baratheon and A Clash of Kings Davos 1. Just the one chapter alone, I think the pe- the public and the people, the hashtag people, are going to be all about this episode. The it's people demand this. The people do demand this, and we're really excited to have you on, man. It's good. It's, it should be a lot of fun. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Frank. Hi, Frank. How are we doing? Lord James, <laughs> Lord James, Tim, Lord James Stormborn, War of the Worldwide Werewood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sea Lord of Bravos, Kelly, War of the Eastern, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, and Lord Ryan. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That's the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Sir Anthony P., another sworn Stannerman, sent us a really great email last month. And this isn't a question, but we figured it was an excellent point worth responding to in this chapter in particular. George spoke previously about the connection between Stannis and Tiberius as portrayed in I, Claudius. That particular connection lies squarely in the realm of personality and history, but it sparked me to think about how similar Stannis and the Romans viewed the public practice of religion as transactional. We all agree Stannis will end up burning Shireen, but what must precede that will be a spiritual conversion, metanoia, towards R'hllor, or at the very least a belief in his strength and power. 
As Stannis moves down the path towards conversion, he goes from avowed atheist to skeptic, and by the end, a possible devotee. But between atheist and skeptic, he enters a phase whereby he illuminates the ancient Roman approach to religious observances. Uh, do a deus, I'm guessing. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a filthy heathen, I don't know my Close Latin. <laughs> do this, yes. There you go. I give so you might give captures the practical approach of both he and the Roman people who had carried out ritualized public worship in exchange for the favor of the gods. Victory, a good harvest, purification, health, etc. Rituals like the sacrifice of the bull and the Torabolium come to mind. This transitory phrase isn't by any means a new topic, but I hope the comparison to Rome is. Stannis partakes in public and private acts of sacrifice in the burning of the Seven, the leeches, or the execution and sacrifice of Alistair Florent to solicit a favorable action, but not out of filial love or devotion to his new god, but strictly, strictly in an exchange for benefits. Season 2, Episode 3, in a debate with Melisandre, she presses the king to give himself to R'hllor. Stannis responds, I've said the words, damn you, I burned the idols. The king feels he has done his part, and now it is incumbent upon R'hllor to hold up his end of the bargain. The king would treat and negotiate with the divine as an equal. Even if he lacks a conversion of the heart, by participating in the public rituals, he expects gods or R'hllor to return the benefits for worship offered. I think it's a really great summary of Stannis' connection to that part of both religious and political history. I'm going to turn it over to our guest first. Frank, what do you make of that? Well, first off, I want to give a shout out to Anthony, who is another loyal Stannerman and fellow Trash Panda on Twitter with myself. So great analysis. And it dovetails really well with a point I intend to make later on when we do get to the Wind Proud next week. It's about how Stannis views the notions of duty and obligation as so powerful and compelling that even gods must submit before them. They have to, as Emmett said in the fantastic prologue episode, which had half the runtime of this episode, because otherwise <laughs> Stannis will shatter into a million pieces and or slowly transform into a corn cob. Because that's what happens when you have to justify your parents' deaths and then your father figure and brother treating you like such utter garbage. So said notions of obligation and compulsion don't really work in a monotheism that has a god who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. You'd have a better chance of commanding the win, Ixnay on Euron A, but not really Ixnay because Euron is absolutely one of the characters that understands, perhaps better than anyone in Aeswaf, the possibilities and nature of divine or eldritch transactions. But if gods are more capricious and they can be bargained with, whose favor can be earned not by conversion and acts of faith, but by transactions, then this makes sense. Blood for the blood god. And really, so far, there doesn't appear to be an ostensible deity in Aeswaf that doesn't you know, accept blood. The seven don't really count, but then again, maybe they have such little power because nobody's tried any blood sacrifices to them in a while. All of which is perfect setup for Stannis to see Melisandre's demonstrations of power, not just as evidence that she's more than a huckster, or at the very least, she may be exaggerating, but she can get results. He can see working with Mel as an immortal demon-conjuring middlewoman who, if he provides X, will get him Y he intends which will inevitably lead to him getting Z when Shireen as the offering. Because while the gods of Planetos can help people cheat death, command nature, and gain all sorts of other powers, even the gods can't stop playing painful jokes on our large, poor, sad adult <laughs> son, Stanny. I think it's an excellent point. I think the, the question and the, the nature of Stannis's relationship with R'hllor is one that ends up resulting in a lot of debate about how religious Stannis actually is. But I think... Anthony hits on something that I think is interesting in terms of Stannis's character, right? He has this whole 
series of dialogues with Davos Seaworth about why Davos is being elevated to knighthood, why he's being elevated to lordship, and then to become the hand of the king. And the reason why he's why Stannis is elevating these guys is that Stannis essentially is performing transactional service, right? He's providing loyalty and good, just, loyal service, and he's being raised in the same way that Stannis is providing good, just, loyal service, I guess, to Berlore. So he should be raised too, right? He should be getting benefits because for Stannis, like, the question is, like, what the law does, right? The law punishes evil and rewards the good. Religion should work the same exact way. And this is one of those things I think is really fascinating about Stannis is that he applies this perspective of the law to more things in his life that he really should, to include his relationships to Melisandre, Selyse, his friendship with Davos, and also to religion, too, his relationship with R'hllor. And I think that ends up spelling a lot of kind of disaster for Stannis in the long term, and also in the short term, spells a lot of like difficulties for him, too, when he's up in the north and he's having all these religious issues with his army, with half his army being made of unbelievers and half his army being made of R'hllorites. And he makes the same sort of transactional relationship with R'hllor come the Dance with Dragons, the final chapter from Ash's perspective, The Sacrifice, which opens with Stannis showing up there to a burning, right? After he had told the after he told his, his R'hllorite followers in the previous Asha chapter that there will, there will be no burnings, pray more, or pray harder. And it's interesting that he has then a burning the next chapter. Essentially, this is because they've engaged in cannibalism, but at the same time, a lot of the guys around Stannis are like, no, no, this is actually not just for the justice aspect of it. It's because it's to actually spell the end of this terrible storm that's enveloping our camp here and you know you could actually and I I hate to like kind of like you know disagree with my own perspective past previous perspectives about Stannis but I do think there is something to be said about the veracity of that argument that Stannis is like okay I've I've said the words damn you I've offered you men to be to the sacrifice now and this goddamn storm like you like this is my relationship to R'hllor this is my relationship to religion this is my relationship to everything good deeds are rewarded bad deeds are punished and that's not necessarily how the world works to Stannis's ultimate demise I believe it's almost Sansa-esque you know in that he believes the stories not about knights in shining armor but about the justice system that he believes is operating in Westeros and it just doesn't bear out in reality but he's going to make it that way well he he assumes that he can command the supernatural the same way but he also assumes that R'hllor is a just deity or that its rules make sense and you know that's that's definitely where he falls far short but that's where the Euron comparison holds up because Euron shows what that's that process is actually about it's about <laughs> gaining power not doing justice and I think Stannis is, is is running up against some some unfortunate ground there especially as he gets through to dance agreed there so that's an excellent email there's actually a longer email for you guys who are one of some of our patrons we will post the full email that anthony sent to us because he had a whole section about davos maybe we'll read that next week we'll see we'll figure it out maybe i'll cut this we'll, we'll figure it out for next week if you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast, please consider joining us on Patreon as a sworn sword or higher at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast ASOF, where you can ask us questions, get a song advice and fire, and for your dream bonus episodes, next one is coming pretty soon after this one, get show notes, hang out on our Slack as a High Lord Lady or Small Council Member, and receive Patreon-only posts. And speaking of Euron, we continue to inch forward in achieving our stretch goal of having a thousand patrons, and we get when we get there, we will release a special episode all about the Forsaken that released Aaron Dampier chapter from the Winds of Winter, which focuses so heavily on the Crow's Eye. Yes, uh, it'd be a lot of fun to get that transactional nature of Euron doing a massive blood sacrifice in order to achieve his ends, which is, oh God, terrifying. But enough about Patreon and Anthony's excellent Stannis insight. Let's now turn our attention to the synopsis for Clash of Kings Davos 1, which um, does not feature Stannis at all. 
Davos watches as the seven aspects of God represented as not at all Catholic statues that George was not exposed to against his will for his child and teenage years go up in flame and smoke. The old wooden paint disappears into a blaze, or as Davos puts it, a quote, fierce, hungry light. Gotta love a good overlooked Davos slime. The gargoyles behind the flames blur on Davos's vision, making Davos think that the statues are crying stigmata style, which again, George, we see you, man, is not at all Catholic. Allard, one of Davos's sons, thinks that this is a pretty shit move to burn the statues, but Davos tells him to shut it. Remember where you are. His sons were good men, but young, and Allard especially was rash. Had I stayed a smuggler, Allard would have ended up on the wall. Stannis spared him from that end. Something else I owe him. Hundreds of men, women, and children bear witness to the statues going up in flames, belching an evil smell into the air. Even Davos, not exactly the most religious guy in the world to ever grace the pages of A Song of Ice and Fire, thinks that this is awfully sacrilegious, and it becomes ever more wrong as Davos watches as Melisandre circles the statues, praying in the foreign tongue of Ashai, before switching to High Valyrian, to finally finishing up in the common tongue of Westeros. Rulor. Come to us in the darkness, she called. Lord of light, we offer you these false gods, these seven who are one, and him the enemy. Take them and cast your light upon us, for the night is dark and full of terrors. Queen Selyse, standing next to Stannis, chants the words, but Stannis, well, he's in his Sunday best, but he stands there jaw clenched. Davos gives some backstory about the Dragonstone Sept. It was where Aegon the Conqueror had prayed the night before he made his way to Westeros, but that was nothing to the Queen's men who stormed into the Sept to break shit with warhammers. The Sept had cursed them, but it was Sir Hubert Rampton and his three sons who had killed men hot. They killed four of the Queen's men before they were overwhelmed and tossed into jail. A lord by the name of Gunster Sunglass, the quote, mildest and most pious of lords, decided that enough was enough. He was done supporting Stannis. Do not pass go, Gunster. Go directly to jail. The other lords had gotten the message after that, but Davos, well, again, like I said, not much of a believer, but he had made offerings to the warrior before battle, to the smith before sailing the sea, and his mother when his wife got pregnant. He's not feeling too hot right now. Terrible pun, I resign. But he's not feeling well, and it ain't just the snoke in the air that's causing him to get sick. Maester Crescent would have stopped this. The old man had challenged the Lord of Light and had been struck down for his impiety, or so the gossips told each other. Davos knew the truth. He had seen the maester slip something into his wine. Poison. What else could it be? He drank a cup of death to free Stannis from Melisandre, but somehow her god shielded her. Mm, not really sure about that one, that Crescent could have freed Stannis or whether Stannis is even trapped by Melisandre, but I digress for now. Davos would have killed Melisandre, but he knows he doesn't stand a chance. A maester had failed, and he was only an up-jump smuggler. Davos of Fleet Bottom, the Onion Knight. And though the smoke was awful, the sacrilege worse, Davos does recognize the beauty in the flames as they burn red, orange, and yellow. But still, the gods have been carved from Aegon's ships, and we're burning them? Of course we're burning them, Melisandre had told Stannis. They are beautiful, and their beauty will make an all the more wonderful offering to Relor. And the Astorian enemy is screaming quite internally. And actually aloud at this point, I guess. The mother lay athwart the warrior, her arms widespread as if to embrace him. The mother seemed to almost shudder as the flames came licking up her face. A long sword had been thrust through her heart, and its leather grip was alive with flame. The father was on the bottom, the first to fall. Davos watched the hand of the stranger writhe and curl as the fingers blackened and fell away one by one, reduced to so much glowing charcoal. <laughs> Yikes. Nearby, Lord Celtigar was coughing while his mermen were joking around, enjoying the warmth of blasphemous fire while Lord Bar Eamon was going gray. And Lord Valarian only watched Stannis. Davos wishes he knew what everyone was thinking, but he knows that he's in the wrong frat. These Mew Epsilon Lambda bros would never talk to someone like Davos, who had pledged Stig Sigma Tau Alpha Nu Nu Sigma. You get what I'm saying, right? No? <sighs> okay. Fucking heathens. They scorned his sons as well. My grandsons will joust with theirs, though, and one day their blood may wed with mine. 
In time, my black little ship will fly as high as Valerian's seahorse or Celtigar's red crabs. But only if Stannis sat the Iron Throne. Everything I am, I owe to him. It was Stannis who raised him to knighthood, gave him a real ship instead of a smuggler's skiff, and his two oldest sons were ship captains, his middle son was an oar master on Stannis' flagship Fury, and Mathos was with Davos on Black Betha, and Devon was Stannis' royal squire. His youngest boys were with Maria on Cape Wrath and Davos' own keep, where Davos could go hunting. All this he had of Stannis for the price of a few finger joints. It was just what he did to me. I had flouted the king's laws all my life. He has earned my loyalty. You really get the sense here that George really, really wants to drive home the point of why Davos is so loyal to Stannis here, and we are definitely going to talk about that more. Davos touches the pouch around his throat, the pouch containing his finger bones, and this is something that Davos will never do again, just like John flexing his sword hand. Never going to happen again. <clears throat> Davos thinks his finger bones are his luck, and man, hashtag Team Stannis needs some luck right fucking now. Pale flames and dark smoke rise up to the gray sky, and a wind picks up and blows the smoke into the masses. Taste of things to come, thought Davos. Oh boy, Davos, that's a line. Melisandre adorned in not ominous satin silk and even less ominous blood velvet with red vampire eyes and that massive fire ruby at her throat. What I'm saying is that she is red. She starts talking about how in Ashai, there's a story of Lightbringer, Azorahai, and how Azorahai will come again to banish the darkness. And that person is Stannis. So Azorahai, come forward and get your burning sword, boy. Stannis goes marching forward, because of course he does, to get the sword with Devin Seaworth, squire to side. Devin puts, I, I guess, an oven mutt, an oven mitt over Stannis' right hand as Brian Faring, another of Stannis' squires, puts a, um, is that an apron around Stannis' neck? Bells start ringing behind Stannis. Uh-oh, the bells. Patchface starts talking about blue, green, and black flames bubbling under the water. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. And Stannis reaches into the fire, clenching his teeth, probably not because it's... Uh, hot, you know, but because it's Stannis. He went straight to the mother, grasped the sword with his gloved hand, and wrenched it free of the burning wood with a single hard jerk. Then he was retreating, the sword held high, jade green flames swirling around the cherry red steel. Guards rushed to beat the sinners that clung to the king's clothing. All the queen's men start hooting and hollering like Ohioans when a single slice of white bread is placed on the dining room table, yelling about how Stannis, the sword, is a sword of fire and that the sword is burning, which, you know, I guess they have the gift of vision. Then Alessandra proclaims Stannis is Zora high again and how Stannis is the warrior of light, but then, you know, Stannis's oven mitt starts smoldering and the king throws the sword into the earth while beating out the flames on his leg. What I'm saying, guys, is that this is a comedy scene. I know, despite everything, this is comedy. Melisandre calls on Relord to give them light, and the Queen's men start chanting about being the night being dark and full of terrors. Davos wonders if he should say the words too. He's a loyalist, after all. Instead, Davos feels his shortened fingers twitch. Stannis dumps his huffin' bit onto the ground as the gods essentially burn into unrecognizable form. Melisandre starts singing in a shy again, and Stannis unties his apron in silence with Lightbringer next to him, love that apron, glowing hot with the flames, dwindling and dying against the blade. Metaphor. Once Melisandre stops singing, Stannis is done with it. He marches back to Selyse, taking her arm and escorts her back to Dragonstone. Devin and Brian roll the Black and Lightbringer up as Melisandre and Davos have thoughts about all this. The red sword of heroes looks a proper mess. I just love Davos, man. I just do. Some of the nobles stick around to talk amongst themselves, but they get real good and fucking quiet when Davos looks at them. Should Stannis fall, they will put me down in an instant. Davos realizes he isn't part of the king's team, but he's not a queen's man either. He's got really no team besides Stannis himself. The fire around the mess of gods dwindles as Melisandre gets gone with the sword, and Davos tells Dale and Allard that Devon did well by, I guess, not dropping the sword. But Allard is curious about the sigil that Devon was wearing. It ain't the Baratheon sigil. It was a fiery heart. What's up with that, Davos? Well, a king can have more than one sigil, Davos explains. Like a black ship and an onion, Dale says with a wink. 
Regardless, Allard is still pissed about burning the gods. That was curious asks what Allard knows about the gods, and Allard's all like, Dad, you're a damn knight. You took vows. Come on, man. But Davos isn't really interested in smack from Allard. They will support Stannis and not question him. Hmm, not question Stannis, Davos. Okay. We get some conversation about the water cast the boys have taken for their ships, and Davos says he'll talk with Stannis about it, realizing that they don't know how to talk to a king. They're kind of small folk, and they're kind of not. When they look at our banner, all they see is a tall black ship flying on the wind. They close their eyes to the onion. Davos heads down to the crowd port near Dragonstone with all its ships and people looking for gambling, drinking, and um, companionship. Yeah, that. In a scene which I swear to God is a pastiche of Chapter 1 for Fever Dream, now available on Patreon. Chapter 2 available for all $5 about Patreon soon. Davos admires all the tall ships before deciding that he himself has a thirst. Not a red thirst because this isn't a Fever Dream episode. Again, Patreon episode, all $5 about patrons. No, he just wants a drink. Outside of the inn, Davos sees an old weather gargoyle, pats his head for luck, and heads in. Inside, he sees his old friend Salarosad eating grapes like a character inside a fancy novel. When Salas sees Davos, he offers him a seat and some grapes. The Lysini was sleek. The Lysini was a sleek, smiling man whose flamboyance was a byword on both sides of the narrow sea. Today, he wore flashing cloth of silver with jagged sleeves so long the ends of them pooled on the floor. His buttons were carved jade monkeys, and atop his wispy white curls perched a jaunty green cap decorated with a fan of peacock feathers. Again, Salarosad is a character in a fantasy novel. Who the fuck knew? Davos makes his way to Salah, thinking about how Salador's son styled himself a prince given his wealth. Davos himself had gone over to recruit Salador's son to Stannis' cause. He asked Salah why he wasn't there to watch the gods burn, but Salah's all like, dude, burning shit is like every other Wednesday in the list. It's fucking boring, bro. Sure hope Stannis gets bored with burning, though, right? Am I right? Yeah, unfortunately, you really are, Salah. Salador proceeds to talk about how one of his ships made a call at King's Landing and that the kids are going hungry in the streets. He reports that Tyrion is hand of the king now and that he'd fired Janice Lynn. He does all of this while squeezing grapes until they burst in his fingers, of course, with the juice running down his fingers. Again, fantasy character, Salad Rassan. He is one. Davos orders some beer and asks how well the city's defended. Well, as to that, it's not great news. The walls are high, the defenses are being constructed, but maybe it's not all bad news. Who knows if the gold cloaks will even fight to defend the city? And they're too few. They should attack immediately. If they do that, they can make Tyrion into the court jester, and Salarasan can have some hanky-panky with Cersei. You see, Sal has been away from his, quote, wives for far too long. He needs to get laid, man. And he, needs to get, and he also needs to get paid, man. He's only been paid in promises so far. Davos says Sal will get paid when he gets to King's Landing, and that Stannis is good to his word, but as he says this, he thinks... The world's twist-bound hope when slow-born smugglers must vouch for the honor of kings. Sal complains how he's heard all this before, but they really should get moving. The city is ripe to be taken, just like his grapes. Davos's beer arrives and he talks some sense about taking King's Landing. Sure, they might take the city, but they couldn't hold it for long while Tywin was nearby in Harrenhal. And then there was the terrorist mastermind Renly to consider. Sala had some news on Renly, and it ain't good. He's on the march from Highgarden with Marjorie and making his way to King's Landing as they speak. This kind of surprises Davos as he didn't expect Renly to take Marjorie from Highgarden, and it's and he also wonders why he's bringing his new wife, but Salad doesn't really know. Davos says they need to inform Stannis, but Salad has already, already seen to that, and all this despite the frowns that Stannis gave him. Do you think he would like me better if I wore a hair shirt and never smiled? Well, I will not do it. I am an honest man. He will suffer me in silk and, sm and samnite, or else I shall take my ships where I am better loved. That sword was not Lightbringer, my friend. Davos feels uneasy at this conversation turn, and Sal continues on about how people tell him shit. And then he proceeds to tell Davos the full Azor High story to Davos, which for time purposes I will not get into here because we are sure shit going to get into the end of this episode. At the end of the story, Sal Rosan says that Stannis' Lightbringer just ain't. But when will they go sailing? Davos thinks it'll be soon if Stannis' God wills it. This piques Sal's interest. Davos? You're not a, you're not a R'hllor guy? Davos sipped his ale to give himself a moment. 
the inn is crowded and you are not Salador San in your mind himself. Be careful how you answer. King Stannis is my god. He made me and blessed me with his trust. Salah says he'll remember that, but now he needs to go get some grub. Mint slam, roasted gull, stuffed with mushrooms, fennel and onion, and they're so totally going to be feasting in King's Landing soon, right? Eek. Well, regardless, Salah wants Davos to let Stannis know that the tally of debts is going up in the next moon. Maybe Stannis should have, shouldn't have burned those gods. They could have fetched some cash money, y'all. But if he gets to go to Bonetown with Cersei, Salah will forgive this debt Stannis owes him. And with that, Salador San, fancy character, exits stage right. Davos stays drink for a while, thinking back to being with Stannis at King's Landing and the tourney for Joffrey's name day. He remembers Thoros of Mir and his flaming sword and the, and the spectacle of it all. And he knows there is no real magic with Thoros of Mir then. Yes, very true, Davos. Then, Bronze Young Royce made quick work after Thoros' sword went less bright. A true sword of fire. Now that would be a wonder to behold. Yet at such a cost. Davos thinks about Nissa Nissa and imagines it being Maria, his good-natured, plump wife, but with a nice smile. The best woman in the world. He can't imagine putting his sword through her heart. I am not made of the stuff of heroes, he decided. If that was the price of a magic sword, it was more than he cared to play. God, I love Davos. And that is part one of the synopsis for Clash of Kings Davos 1. So I, I figured I'd kind of kick this off. I would just say, just for the better purposes, because I know we're going to get into depth on this this chapter itself, but just to talk about why Davos is a point of view character, it's, it's interesting, right? Because you wouldn't expect him to be a character, a point of view character. He's not mentioned at all in A Game of Thrones at any point of time. Maybe George went back and kind of put him in the appendix at some point, but I, I don't remember that off the top of my head. So... Here's what George has said about why Davos becomes a point of view character. In a Sospeak Barn all the way back from 2003, George said, said at first he was going to use the original point of views from Game of Thrones for the entire series. Then he realized that he realized he needed to see what Stannis was doing, but he didn't want to use Stannis as a point of view. So he created Davos. Davos was his first added point of view. The rest followed. So I guess the question I opening question for you guys. What do you guys think about Davos as a point of view? And what do you think specifically about this chapter? Just a general question. Just general observations. We'll get to the minutiae as we're going forward. So I think Davos is the consensus best POV. Every other great POV has people for whom they're left cold, but pretty much everyone sings the praises of Davos' chapters. And for good reason, so much amazing shit happens in them. Just later in this book, we get a Courtney Penrose at Storm's End, some of Stannis' best dialogue there, the shadow baby underneath the castle, and of course later on in the book, The Battle of Blackwater. And then in A Storm of Swords and Dance with Dragons, we get even more incredible dialogue scenes. But my absolute favorites in the series in terms of the themes of power and politics that Clint was tackling so well with us last week. And all the way through, Davos acts with remarkable courage and clarity in speaking truth to power and seeking to both fight for right and save the innocent. Really, his only rival for the title of best person among the major-ish characters of A Song of Ice and Fire is Brienne of Tarth. In many ways, his equivalent in Renly's camp, although that's also Courtney Penrose for sure. Mm -hmm. The difference being Davos is in the right camp and Brienne is for <laughs> understandable, if still treasonous reasons, in the wrong mm -hmm. camp. True, although Davos is in Stannis' camp because of the direction his life took after Storm's End, more than Stannis being Robert's rightful heir by law. And of course, guys, these are all reasonable responses, but this chapter is woefully bereft of opportunities to shit on Renly as a treasonous little git. And if I don't mention that <laughs> at least one per podcast episode, I lose a bet. 
Well, I would hate to have a fine capitalist such as yourself lose any money from your wallet. <laughs> but it's a relevant debate, right? The core of Davos's characterization is how his personal and political motivations mix, how they both harmonize and conflict depending on the situation he's put in. And you could argue that it's, it's Davos more than any other character who really makes the politics of A Song of Ice and Fire interesting. And I got to quote our frequent guest Stephen Atwell in full here because Davos is his favorite character and he's always written so well about him. So what he had to say about this chapter is... Uh, Keep in mind that every single POV character in A Game of Thrones was, however else they may be affected by sexism or ableism <laughs> or social prejudice, a noble. Here for the first time, one of the small folk is given room to speak on both the political conflicts he is at the very heart of, but also of his own life experience and his own hopes and dreams. Because for Davos Seaworth, the two are inextricably linked. And the key phrase there is room to speak. Because again and again, Davos is compelled to make the case for what he believes for what he's chosen to make of his life, and for the king for whom he keeps putting it all on the line. And you can see that right away in this first POV chapter with Stannis' letter, as we'll talk about in more detail next week. The peasant risen to night is the first one to evaluate the legally rightful king's declaration of intent. You can just feel the gears of society turning around them, like everything is coming to a halt to hear what Davos has to say. That framing will continue at Storm's End later on in this book, upon his return to Dragonstone in the next book, and later on in his sojourns to Sisterton and White Harbor and presumably Skagos as well. You know, as Jeff said, Davos began life as a camera on Stannis Baratheon. And I think there's an interesting parallel there to Sansa Stark, in that both characters evolved well beyond their initial confines, well beyond what the author originally intended for them. And so there is like a, a meadow arc shattering their arc as you come back to these characters. This is not just the story of Davos Seaworth, it is the story of George R.R. R. Martin discovering Davos Seaworth and communicating that process to the reader. And that works especially well, given that Davos himself is an outsider turned insider. It's, it's as if... George himself was at some point along the writing process the recipient of one of Davos's great admonishing calls to arms, and he realized how important his most prominent non-noble character could be. I think, though, because of that, Davos's role as Jiminy Cricket to his ever-so-complex and tortured king <laughs> it sometimes results in him getting reduced and even caricatured as a character. You know, Davos thinks of himself as a simple man in a complex situation. And that's still often taken at face value by a lot of people, I think, in spite of him being so well fleshed out beyond that as we go. And coming back on reread, that self-deprecation self on Davos's part feels to me so strongly like a defense mechanism. Like, this is Davos's way of avoiding the bends, basically, from how quickly he's risen and how far he could fall. That's also the way that Davos helps to present himself in such a way that he doesn't... that people think he's just a simple guy, but then he actually provides some like surprising complexity in his character especially in his relationship with Stannis as we're going to explore through Clash Storm and A Dance with Dragons it's it's much more complex than simply this, this massive loyalist guy who's just on Stannis' side and will forever be on Stannis' side because he ain't but all that being said though I think there's you know the, the way I look at Davos is the same way that you know Danny presents herself and starting in A Storm of Swords is I am but a young girl who knows little of the ways of war like that's mm. the parallel here of this person who is setting herself up as you know playing into like the 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 prejudices of of the, of the social class in, in Essos, the same way that Davos is playing into the, in the into the social prejudice of the noble class in Westeros, then presenting himself as just just a simple you know smuggler guy up and up jump smuggler, become a knight after he provided goods and services to Stannis Baratheon. That's a guy that the lords can easily dismiss. That's also a guy that's able to hide a lot of complexity, which makes him so unique and compelling as a point of view character. 
yeah, the, 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 and there's a lot of other Danny analogs that we can make, you know, with Stannis, obviously. But for here, for Davos, the self-defense mechanism of I am just, you know, I'm just a simple smuggler. I just follow Stannis. And that with Danny, I am but a young girl who knows the little ways of war. It starts off first as genuine for both of them. Danny is telling her advisors, you know, help me figure this out. Davos is saying, I'm just a simple smuggler who, who Stannis recognizes the value of. And then Davos goes even further further than what Stannis had originally plotted. Same thing with Danny, where she is be giving, being given advice about warfare, but then she's the one who comes up with the commando raid for the sewers of Marine. She's the one, you know, I mean, uh, Brown Ben Plum proposes it, but then she says, well, who can I pass? I can't order anyone to do that. But then she reconciles Barristan and um, Jorah's betrayal and says, I found the perfect candidates. So it, it's, it's, they start off as defense mechanisms, but then they transition to covers for the real abilities that were really always there all along. True. I mean, Davos feels out of place politically in terms of his class in this world, but I also think he tries to reduce himself to just a simple family man when that's never what he's been. <laughs> he was the most notorious and elusive smuggler in the Seven Kingdoms. How did he settle down with Maria? How did that happen? Just imagine the absurd heroic gall it takes to pilot those onions into Storm's End during the siege. Mediocrities don't do that. They stay home and download their failures onto their children like normal fathers do. Uh, oh, God. I, I'm being the only father figure here. I'm suddenly feeling very insecure about my... You're my exceptional, place. Jeff. Don't worry. Thank you. I appreciate that, man. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to you, but you mentioned about Davos breaking the siege of Storm's End. You know, think about, like, all the complexities here. I mean, there's, there's more than just simply, like... Getting the onions to Storm's End, he had to break through hundreds of red wine ships. In, in a Storm of Swords, it's mentioned that Paxter Redwine has 300 ships that he's able to bring to the fore in a Storm of Swords. It's likely it was the same number of ships there. He has to navigate the treacherous coastline of the Stormlands. The same treacherous coastline and waters that killed Stannis' mother and father that Stannis watched from, from Storm's End. You know, I, I do wonder if that's kind of at play in Stannis' aberration of Davos, that this guy is, was able to make it through and was able to save me, but my own mother and father weren't able to make it through and they weren't able to save me. Yeah, that's great stuff, man. I think it's it plays into how Davos is presented as a, as a larger-than-life figure in his own right, just like Stannis or Melisandre. He's, he's this angel of mercy who came like a miracle in Storm's End and will be a miracle figure for Edric Storm as well, maybe for Rickon, we'll see. And but what makes him different from Stannis or Melisandre or Salad or San isn't that he's led an average life none of these characters have. <laughs> it's that he's not pretentious about mm. it. He, he doesn't get ahead of himself, and he doesn't think of himself as superior. As we see, especially in A Dance with Dragons, when he goes to White Harbor, he never forgets where he came from. And that's not incidental. That is crucial crucial to his ethical perspective. You would never you would never get the the scene from Theon 1, the sample chapter, where Stannis just rattles off his victories and kind of inflates the one over the wildlings. You'd never get a monologue like that from Davos. You could get it from Mel or Saladar San or any of the dozens of other characters we have, but imagining Davos say that is just completely out of place for him. Absolutely. He's the character who, despite technically being reborn in the sea from salt and smoke after the Blackwater, would never think of himself as a Zora High. He's a figure of legends and song without even wanting to be. He claims to lack the stuff of heroes in this chapter. But in truth, he possesses a greater quantity of it than Stannis ever would. <laughs> what was that? What was that, Frank? Uh, oh, the expression on Frank's face. Uh, look, uh, look. Just going to photograph that from my memory from here on out. Uh, look. I know that Davos absolutely possesses the stuff of heroes, but more than Stannis, I don't... Look, y'all brought me here to make you both look more reasonable on Stannis, and this is a perfect True. time for my extremism to shine through. 
I'll wait for most of it to get to the foreshadowing and groundwork. <laughs> they both have the stuff of heroes in terms of being grand, dramatic, large-in-life personas who shake the world. But in terms of which one you'd hold up as a role model to be like? Oh, really? Come on. The best stuff Stannis does is because Davos <laughs> tells him to. Which one of those two guys oh do you want to be like? Oh my god, you transitioned into a Twitter troll. You're now a Twitter That's troll. That's completely accurate and you know it. But regardless, <laughs> car- carry on with your thoughts about this <sighs> chapter as a whole, sir. Davos isn't going to be there when Stannis feeds Ramsay to his dog. Which is so not Davos' Davos. fault. Stannis sent him away because he couldn't deal with Davos telling him to do the right thing really loudly. <laughs> but proceed, sir. All right, that's what we're going to do tonight? We're going to fight? No. It's supposed to be a happy I'm, I'm going to declare victory, a... and you're going to move on. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, it's the benefits of being the host. True. Anyway, uh, anyway, you guys mentioned last week that second chapters are often where we get to the thematics of these characters in Clash, and that's true. But here in Davos 1, it really has more in common with those second chapters and that you have rich thematics and just the sheer smorgasbord of literary meat. There's more significant events and dialogue points here than points the Browns had against the Ravens in Baltimore on Sunday. Boo. Because... <laughs> Because this is really the second Stannis chapter after the prologue. Mm-hmm. And George, despite not knowing about Davos when he sat down to write his pitch letter or even when Game of Thrones itself came out, and I just looked really quick in the appendix, Davos is not in there. For hmm. Stannis's household, it's himself, uh, Selyse, and Shireen. So he's clearly inspired with this chapter for both Stannis and Davos himself. Davos is at his best written when his principles are in conflict. Mm-hmm. As much as the conflict between his smuggler and lordly self, for Davos, the big question is how do you fight for the right and save the innocent, as Emmett said, when doing the former means sacrificing the latter? That tension is arguably the best personal inner conflict in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's shared by arguably its two best POVs, Daenerys and Davos. Davos becomes and stays a noble based on his skill, much of which he acquired long before his fateful run-in with Stannis. So it's not just that he is a small folk. He's not just a POV from the Riverlands or one of the Myrnes freedmen we might have profited from being given in dance, but that he's a small folk raised to the rank of noble, and he stays there. He actually rises even more swiftly, reaching after going to the depths the lowest steps that he'd ever get to because he is so much better at his job of being lordly than the actual lords. Ned, Daenerys, and sweet, poor damn Admir accepted. And, and Davos showing off like that is as damning a critique of the entire feudal structure as the corruption with Stannis abhors. It's bad enough the lords are corrupt. It's that they're corrupt and bad at their jobs. For someone like Stannis, these are twofold sins he cannot possibly abide. And he, he can abide them, he just hates it. He hates it so much. You can feel just the he hates every bit of it when he's talking to Davos later in this book about how he hates the fact that he has to pardon these people when he's punished better men for lesser crimes. So that gets to the point of why Stannis wants Edric. Stannis wants Edric ostensibly to hold next to the Lanner kids and go see the difference, which absolutely works for a largely illiterate society more familiar with families and hair color than letters and treatises upon the rights of succession. The small folk don't give a shit about that. The small folk can understand that, hey, your wife just had a kid and it's got blonde hair, but you have black hair. And now there's a problem. So for many 
that can't or won't see what Stannis is telling him, his po- his pure cold water of truth, that will infuriate him to no end and get him to the point where he starts he starts to sound like a revolutionary in Storm. But what really starts to radicalize Stannis against his fellow nobles is holding up Davos against these lords, regardless of their loyalties, and going see the difference. Davos is also the perfect juxtaposition with Littlefinger in this regard as well, because Littlefinger's raised from modest means, you know, he's still a member of the noble class, but it's it's barely a member of the noble class. His grandfather was a merchant from Bravos, if I remember right, and he's got a small one-tower keep, so he's raised from modest means, but the key difference is, what do they do with being raised up? And Littlefinger is just the worst in this regard. And then eventually, as Stannis himself will tell Davos, his son, and his personal squire, and again, think of the significance, Stannis selects Devon as a personal royal squire. That's a signal, even before the books begin, that Stannis sees a lot in Davos. And he tells uh, Devon, you have a passing clever father, Devon, the king told the boy, standing by his elbow. He makes me wish I had more smugglers in my service and fewer lords. Now he says this right before he ignores Davos' clever advice, which is always a bad which is always a bad path for his grace, but let's not get bogged down in minutiae. <laughs> sure. Thus, Davos is one of, if not the best arguments in favor of Stannis, not just as the rightful king, but the right king. Few, if any of our other POVs or people in positions of power in this universe, have someone to tell them when they're wrong. Catelyn does this for Rob, again with the same mixed results we often see with Davos and Stannis. And But almost none of our POVs actively seek out such persons. Rob basically sends Catelyn away, much like Stannis sends Davos away, because he doesn't like his mom telling him this. Stan- Stannis does and gives Davos, as Atwell said and you quoted earlier, not just room to speak, but room to be heard. Further, Stannis recognizes the value in Davos' advice. Even when he disagrees with Davos, he doesn't do the parental thing of like, I'm the king, so we're doing it my way. He engages with Davos' ideas and explains himself, which is not something you do to someone you feel is like your complete lower person. And because Davos, as we see in this chapter, is quite reluctant to stick his neck out, he chides his sons when they express displeasure of burning the gods. When did you grow so devout, Davos said. What does a smuggler's son know of the doings of gods? I'm a knight's son, father. If you won't remember, why should they? A knight's son, but not a knight, said Davos. Nor will you ever be, if you meddle in the affairs that do not concern you. Stannis is our rightful king. It is not for us to question him. We sail his ships and do his bidding. That is all. But it's not all, is it? Davos rises so high and becomes his best self when he does question Stannis. First, it's Stannis' invitation at the end of this chapter, and then on his own own initiative. Does Stannis always listen? No, and oft does Stannis suffer for it. But when Stannis does listen, ah, that's when he becomes the king who cared, who is, as the word of God said, in spite of everything, a righteous man. Davos, I'm just a simpler smuggler, is a form of false modesty, but it doesn't feel false because we can see and read that Davos' doubts are real. It's almost a species of imposter syndrome. He knows all about these accomplishments, he says. He's lived them. He's doing them. He brought Salador San to Dragonstone of all places. Can you think of a location that Salador San, with all of his flamboyant, his painted striped ships would like to visit less than Dragonstone. There's no trade. There's no good food. There's no whores. Why would Salador San go to Dragonstone, yet Davos gets him there for paper money? So, I mean, not to go all Ron Paul on this, but paper money in Westerosi society is basically worthless. 
So he knows all about these accomplishments, but much like his grace, it's not enough. It's never been enough to dispel the whispers in Davos's head that he doesn't belong. I think that that kind of contributes to Davos's popularity among the fandom, given that it's uh, fandoms largely composed of young professionals growing up in the post-recession economy. So his doubts about the future or why he keeps pretending his record from the past isn't that impressive. But if you made a movie on Davos's life alone, it'd be damn compelling. Mediocrities don't find out that the guy whose ass they just saved from one of the worst ways imaginable to die, yeah, that guy, intends to mutilate them and their response is, I serve my nickel, you come and take me. That's a John Mulaney reference. But that's what he says. He says, yeah, I'll do it, but you gotta come do it yourself. Think of the sheer cojones that takes. I wonder if Stannis thought Davos would flee and then he wouldn't have to deal with the smuggler. But then when he stays, I think that's really the genesis of Stannis accepting Davos's. This guy's different because I mean, Stannis is so used to people flaking on him. Robert, the other Lords, the Lords of the Stormlands who are with the, the Lords of the Reach besieging him at Storm's End. He's used to people flaking, but then Davos says, my hand's right here on the chopping block, but you got to do it. And that's really, I think, the genesis of this just great relationship. So Davos, while perhaps the best single point in universe for Stannis, is also the single best meta point in arguing for Martin's gardener style. We know that Stannis doesn't appear in the original pitch letter, and we still get him. But then Martin decides he doesn't want us in Stannis' head, as Jeff said earlier, for a variety of reasons, and so he invents a camera POV and gives us Davos. Again, a top POV in the entire series. He meant to give us Arya Hota, and instead we got Han motherfucking Solo. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's excellent. I think that's absolutely true. I think the, the question, though, is... In terms of, of Davos, like what what makes him not be the Ario Hota and what makes him more than a one or two dimensional character? And I think that's an important question to ask about Davos. And I think this chapter does a lot to spell out what makes Davos so unique among the point of view characters that George has in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, it's easy to caricature Davos as just like, a, you know, a little outline of a character with the word loyalty written on it. And he's just okay. like a, a one dimensional character. But really, he struggles constantly to reconcile all of the conflicting aspects of his self and his various loyalties. Like if you look at Jamie's famous monologue from later in this book, so many vows, they make you swear and swear, defend the king, obey the king, keep his secrets, but obey your father, etc., etc. All these conflicts tearing Jamie apart from within. Compare that to what Davos writes to his wife in A Dance with Dragons. I was a better smuggler than a knight, a better knight than a king's hand, a better king's hand than a husband. I am so sorry. It's that same conflict, but Jamie is, you know, Byronic and melodramatic. He's obvious. Basic. He's, well, he's obviously complicated in the way that Stannis is obviously complicated. Davos's deeper currents are a little more subtle and I think a little easier to miss. Uh, for a character who's defined by his willingness to speak up, how ironic is it that this is his first line of dialogue in his first POV chapter to his sons? Silence. Remember where you are. Because Davos will always remember where he is. Every second of every day, he knows he doesn't belong here, and he is forever sure he's about to be kicked out of the halls of power. As he says, if Stannis falls, they will tear me down in an instant. And his greatest fear, of course, is that they'll kick out his sons along with him. And as supporting characters to a supporting character, Davos's elder sons are kind of broadly drawn and a little stiff here, and I do wish we'd gotten to know them better. You know, maybe throw in a chapter where Davos is going around delivering the letter that Stannis gives him at the end of this uh, uh, chapter and give us more time with Dale and Allard that way. I don't know. But, I mean, they are the most prominent casualties of the Battle of Blackwater on the Baratheon side in a character sense, not in a political sense, and that they're a big motivator for Davos going forward. 
And they serve their purpose, really, though, which is to cement the stakes for Davos and throw his divided identity into sharp relief. My favorite line from any of them comes when Davos says, a lord can choose more than one badge, and Dale smiles, and he says, a black ship and an onion father. Because as the eldest, presumably Dale knows his father best and remembers the old days best, and he realizes that when Davos talks of Stannis' duality with the crown stag and the fiery heart, He's really talking about his own. I mean, this is a moment of great cultural transition on Dragonstone, right? That's what this whole scene indicates. Everything is changing. And no one there knows what everything is changing feels like better than the Onion Knight, because he alone wasn't born this way. Like, with Arya in Clash, now that she's underfoot and among the small folk, we see that painful transition from one world to another in real time. With Davos, it happened years ago, and he carries it with him, like those finger bones around his neck. So if he doesn't have the most obviously dramatic POV arc. If he, he doesn't have as explicit and urgent an identity crisis as, like, the Stark kids do. It's because, you know, a fish doesn't know they're wet. It's because his whole life is an identity crisis. That's the kind of issue he's dealing with every second of every day. But Davos does perhaps the best job of any character in the series in reconciling his many warring identities. He reconciles the fact that his loyalty to Stannis will mean more innocents will die because one king means peace. And he also comes to recognize, and this isn't a quote from In Universe, but he comes to recognize that one king means a peace, but peace is not the absence of conflict, it is the presence of justice. And he affirmatively makes that case not in flowery physical philosophical prose, but in a deeply personal, eloquent burst of near blind through tears rage in the Merman's Court in Dance, one of the great monologues of the series. Death, Davos heard himself say. There will be death, I. Your lordship lost a son at the Red Wedding. I lost four upon the Blackwater. And why? Because the Lannisters stole the throne. Go to King's Landing and look on Tommen with your own eyes if you doubt me. A blind man could see it. What does Stannis offer you? Vengeance. Vengeance for my sons and yours, for your husbands and your fathers and your brothers. Vengeance for your murdered lord, your murdered king, your butchered princes. Vengeance. Stannis offers you all caps vengeance against the Lannister regime. But why? Why vengeance and why not peace? Because vengeance is the only recourse against the Lannisters. Why? Because as Stephen Atwell has said many times on this podcast, they're bad actors. There can be no true peace with the Lannister regime. The Lannisters, to paraphrase Tacitus make a, a Roman historian, they make a desert and call it peace. What else would you call the Riverlands, even before the Red Wedding, if not a desert of blood and bones made by the Lannisters? As you guys pointed out last week with your amazing guest, Clint, what justice can possibly flow from a regime that has Tywin, Joffrey, and Cersei in positions of high power? Well said, sir, but I think the problem with Davos' reconciliation in terms of the Stannis regime he imagines going forward is R'hllor. I mean, mm. Davos pulls one hell of an end around in A Storm of Swords. He prevents the sacrifice of Edric Storm. He puts Stannis on a better path that still fits with Melisandre's overall goals. But then his A Dance with Dragons plot opens with the memory of Alistair Florent burning instead, and with Sala telling him, he will kill you with these honors, old friend. He will kill you, which for me is one of the very key phrases of Davos' arc. You know, Davos constantly affirms his loyalty to Stannis' best self, the king he can summon forth. But is Stannis' worst self worthy of his service? Is Davos ultimately sacrificing his family rather than protecting them? I think you can see that tension running throughout his storyline and really brought up here. Yeah, I mean, that sacrifice is kind of interesting on a meta level of is Davos sacrificing his family for the greater good of Stannis, especially given that Stannis is probably going to sacrifice his family for the greater good. And I think what you're going to see is probably, and this, you know, we can talk about this in theory and foreshadowing groundwork is 
Davos probably taps out. And, and the big thing about Stannis is he's not going to tap out. And that's maybe you should have. Right. And that's kind of the the difference that's going to get at their relationship. Asha's got that line about Stannis that he would never, ever turn back from his course. And, of course, the opening line of the series is we should start back. And that might be the, the ultimate strength and fault in Stannis. Always the ambiguity, always the two sides, that he's determined to a fault. And and Davos has that, that, that side of mercy in him. But also that he's he's tied his wagon to Stannis' star. And he ultimately chooses service to that over going home to his family. He may change that later on in the books for sure, but that's he's already dealt with the cost of that, as we saw with that letter to Maria. W- would you say that Davos is John Khan grasping the star of Stannis, overreaching and falling? Oh, sure. They Everyone has that version of that theme, and this is Davos's. As he admits to himself in A Storm of Swords, he bears responsibility for helping start the fire here. And he did it all so his grandsons could joust with theirs, as he said, so his family could keep moving up because the assimilation is not complete. Everything about this opening scene suggests that, and he wants it to be, so he will make his deal with the devil just as Stannis is making his. And that's what makes Stannis' story so great in part, that the stakes are both grandiose and intimate. Like, you get all this fate of the kingdom and the world, as you say, flowery philosophical stuff, contrasted with the fate of this one striving family that is tied to Stannis' rise, that Davos is putting it all on the line for. It's It fits those, as you were saying, it fits the Shireen outcome. It's one against a million, and we're already seeing those themes here. And to get back to the stuff of heroes and who has more of it and kind of undermine my point from there, because I'm nothing if not a hypocrite, Stannis must choose whether to sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark. He says that quote when he's talking about Edric, but really he's talking about Shireen eventually. He just doesn't know it yet because Mel's lying to him. Davos is going to sacrifice four to the flames at the Battle of Blackwater, and he's going to be there. And he will keep going to save millions from not just from the darkness of the long night, but from the shadows of power wielded by unjust men against him, his family, and where he comes from, the small folk. Now, will he tap out from that course? Yes. But the fact that Davos got off that rock in Blackwater Bay, got to Dragonstone and said, didn't tell Stannis, I love you, but I'm going home, man. Like, I I gave you four sons. I don't know what more you want from me. Exactly. Yep. Davos probably is going to tap out later. I think that's going to be his plot line as we get on. I, I, maybe. I don't know yet because, you know, wins next week when we get wins, we'll confirm if that <laughs> happens. But it, the fact that he keeps going after the Battle of Blackwater shows a resilience in him that is not often attributed to the character that we really should talk about more. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the, the fires of the Blackwater is you know, very much symbolic of what's happening with Davos' story and ultimately what's happening with Stannis' story, too. And that is an excellent way that George actually paints the picture of starting this chapter with the fiery sacrifice on the beach. Like, we're not we're not in Dragon, the castle of Dragonstone itself to start off this chapter we're on the beach. And we're not, we're not having a philosophical debate about whether Melisandre is actually powerful or not. This has been established already in the narrative. What we're at now is a symbolic representation of Melisandre's power. And that is important for Davos to have this, to be the witness and to be the point of view for this burning of the gods on the beach as kind of a microcosm for a, a number of larger issues that will occur in both Stannis's and Davos's story. But it's important, I think, to actually start about talking about the actual ceremony that Melisandre is performing on the beach itself. So this chapter starts by focusing on the burning of the Seven to create quote-unquote Lightbringer and the declaration of Stannis as Azor High Reborn. And we'll talk a little more about the metaphysics and monomyths involved later in the episode. Again, this chapter is so layered, there's plenty to talk about even putting that aside. You know, you got Melisandre who... In her way, like Davos, is attempting to speak truth to power here, whilst also lying her ass off. 
And this is this is such a complicated scene coming back on reread because you know that Melisandre is sincere about the end times and what she thinks Stannis' role in it from A Dance with Dragons. And you also know, as evidence piles up, that quote-unquote Lightbringer is bunk. Like, coming off last <laughs> week in our discussion of Varys' riddle with Clint, it's so clear that Melisandre's character is all about the trappings of power, as she puts it. She has an overall goal, set fire to the ice demons, and will stage manage whatever spooky superstitious nonsense is necessary to convince people to get on board with her god in service of that endgame. Melisandre is a peerless stage magician, and it turns out that the toolbox of the stage magician isn't much different from the toolbox of the political influencer. So on the one hand, Melisandre of Ashai becomes the first person in the series to warn a large, powerful group of people about the approaching apocalypse, something we've been waiting for all the way through book one. On the other hand, what she uses to win them over is fakery and factionalism, because she knows that they will initially flinch at what she really wants from them at the end of the day, which is fire and blood. You know, people love bright, shiny swords. Why else is fantasy a thing? And plenty of ambitious and or sadistic folks will jump on the chance to wear the boot. She's definitely offering the people of Team Dragonstone something to leap on, but throw your children into the flames? It's going to give almost <laughs> everyone pause. So Melisandre has to win them over with tricks before she makes that ask. It's it's fascinating because I think we actually have a sort of similar scene in the fifth book in A Dance of Dragons in Tyrion's seventh chapter with Azor High reborn revealed as not as Stannis because that's obviously false, but as Daenerys, which might actually be true. And we see some interesting parallels and differences between Melisandre's ceremony on the beach and Benero's sign of, quote, darkness and doom at the Red Temple of Volantis. So some similarities. We got Melisandre Benero there using High Valyrian in their speech. They're also using a fire magic ritual to all the audience, the flaming sword that Melisandre has there versus the Valyrian fire glyphs that Benero paints in the sky. We also have Melisandre, we also have Melisandre pull, having Stannis pull a literal sword of fire from the flames while Benero preaches that a sword of that a sword of fire hangs over Volantis. Dragons boy. But there are some pretty crucial key differences too. It's fascinating to me that Melisandre is preaching to maybe a few dozen true believers on the beach while quote in Volantis, thousands of slaves and freemen crowded the temple plaza every night to hear Benero shriek of bleeding stars and a sword of fire that will cleanse the world. And while Melisandre has the Queen's men at her side, Davos notes that they're minor lordlings, knights, and Selyse, the minority. Hence the need for some sort of Moses burying the golden calf from the Book of Exodus ritual to symbolize the triumph of Valor over the false gods of the Seven. Benero, I mean, for lack of a better term, Benero is basically preaching to the choir, the already convinced, as the World of Ice and Fire has it, that outside of the Black Walls of Atlantis, the Red God Valor is favored by many, especially among the slaves and freedmen of the city. And then we have a really crucial, I think, key difference in the symbolism. Though the Sword of Fire features prominently in both tellings of the Azor High Reborn story from Mel and Ben, get it, Ben, Benero, whatever, I get the sense that Melisandre is hitting the, quote, idiot people of Westeros over the head with the break-it-down Barney-style message she's preaching, the fiery sword plunged directly into the heart of the mother, and Sans has to literally draw the sword. This is Drogon spreading his wings behind Daenerys in Season 8 levels of symbolism that Melisandre is using here. You know, Benero simply, all he has to do is kind of tell the story and the slaves of Freeman of Atlantis get it without the over-the-top and hitting over-the-head symbolism. The, be the people of Atlantis know that Benero is talking about dragons. He doesn't have to have mummers up there like waving fire dragons over the he head of the people um, for them to really understand it. But I think like ultimately though, the end state is the same. Even though we have some crucial and key differences here, the end state is children burning. You know, Stannis' child of Shireen as microcosm for Danny's children as her dragons or her people burning, King's Landing burning, and Westeros ultimately burning. 
And Melisandre admits it to Davos in the Storm of Swords. She has not crossed half the world to sit Stannis Baratheon, heir to Robert Baratheon, on the Iron Throne. That is a means to a larger and more supernatural end. Melisandre is, as always, a parallel to Varys, who doesn't have the same sorcery angle. In fact, he hates that. But he also feigns loyalty and strings people along as he works to, in his mind, save the world, even at the cost of the children, the, the spies whose tongues he removes. And you can see the ambiguity of Melisandre's claim in the mixed response to her ceremony. Some people are offended. Some some people are swayed, some are unmoved by it, like Lord Valerian's just watching Stannis, and some, like Davos, really don't know what to think. Is this a call to action to save the world? Is it a response to the threat we saw in the opening pages of the story? Or, as a lot of the imagery in the mood suggests, is it an, is it an invitation to descend into hell? Tis both, of course. Because Melisandre mm-hmm. knows, and I wish your listeners could see my finger quotes, <laughs> that the only way to save the world is to descend into hell. And for a former slave like Mel, I think she, i think that's her way of making sense of her own suffering like i had to be a slave i had to be whipped i had to be melanie lot seven so if i had to suffer in order to save the world why doesn't everybody else but fortunately unfortunately she's found the <laughs> perfect receptacle to pour that message drip by drip into stannis baratheon by the grace of all god the rightful king of the seven kingdoms <laughs> but stannis baratheon is not a man to be bent so easily at least initially. He will find ways to stave off this descent as long as he can. His surprising political flexibility, his willingness to be told hard truths, first by Davos and then by his I hate him, my sweet baby boy John, and above all, his (laughs) military genius, he will employ all of it to stave off the apocalypse for an ungrateful kingdom. But then the wall will come down. There Melisandre will be with torch in hand, telling him, just as Mary Mazder told Danny, you knew the price. And Stannis will pay it because he's Master Aemon's the one man in 10,000 and it will be horrific. You nailed it, buddy. And that, that ambiguity of putting it all on the line for a righteous cause, but then also descending into the depths of hell to do it is baked into every element of this opening scene. Like on one hand, Davos is as viscerally repulsed by the disrespect shown to the Seven as his sons. He also, his stomach is churning at what's happening here. <laughs> on the other, he repeatedly admits, yeah, I mean, the gods never actually meant anything to him beyond habit and inherited custom. He's not exactly devout. And then you could you could look at this scene, as I think many correctly do, as an act of religious intolerance and repression by the adherents of the new faith of R'hllor. They're destroying sacred items of tremendous beauty and history, as Jeff was saying. You feel sick at that. On the other... You know, the seven worshippers are the ones who kill people, not statues in this chapter. They're the ones who kill four of the queensmen who are coming to the sept. And their ancestors did, did the same damn thing to the first men, who did the same thing to the children of the forest. It keeps going back and back like this. That's, I think, why George weaves that invocation of the arrival of Egon the Conqueror. This was his sept. It's, it's the same as it ever was. The new tears down the old. It's just that every time the fire returns, it burns a little hotter. You know, the first men fought the children, but then they lived in harmony with them. The Andals kind of negated that deal, but they were outmatched by the Targaryens with their field of fire. And even the Targs adopted the faith of Westeros rather than setting it aflame as Melisandre does here. And give her credit, she really knows how to stage a ritual. Like, just this scene, it contains such perfect, shocking, psychedelic horror imagery at its absolute best. I just love it on just a visual level. That opening line, the morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods. The gargoyles seeming to stir in response. Melisandre's scarlet satin and blood velvet and red vampire eyes. Yeah, it's like we get it, Jeff. She's from Mordor. You've, you've, you've made your point. It's appropriate, though. George's shock and awe tactics are reflecting Melisandre's shock and awe tactics. This is all a glamour. It's all a shadow on the wall, to go back to last week. It's an image of destiny and divinity and power. You know, the prologue was like this 
gunslinger stare down between her and Crescent, the representatives of of magic and uh, secular ideas, you know, with a tumbleweed going in the background. This is Melisandre as she plays it to a crowd, and the effect is impressive and terrifying to behold. But again, it's those those layers of history. Just the detail I zeroed in on this reread was that these statues were repainted Valyrian masts. Like, that's that's exactly what's going on in this chapter, these sedimentary layers. That's why Melisandre is singing in Valyrian and Common as well as Ashai, because this is how the Targaryens look to the Andals. This is how the Andals look to the First Men. And this is how the First Men look to the children. And now it's R'hllor's turn. And then with your point about the flames burning hotter each time they come... George has the line, nothing burns like the cold. So when the others come, they're not coming to just replace a religion with a new religion for a purpose. They're coming to wipe it all out. And so that is how the cold in this context, in the religious aspect, burns even hotter than the flames. Exactly right. Hopefully, and this is something that we kind of get some imagery on in this chapter, is that after the others come, we have people like Davos and his sons replacing the hierarchy of Westeros that's been established there. And I think that's really good on, on Martin's part. Again, like we're saying about Martin, he's not a grim dark. Necess- he's not as grim dark as people would portray him out to be. Ultimately, with a bittersweet ending, we have people like Davos and his sons rising to position of prominence and power, replacing the Valerians, replacing the Celtigars of this world. And putting hopefully a better spin on the, on the way the politics is conducted in Westeros. Exactly. I'm not trying to excuse Melisandre's crusade. She's still doing a lot of repressive intolerance and later murderous things. <laughs> I'm just trying to put it in context. She is just the latest crusader to come over the horizon with fire in their hands and eyes. Danny is next. Stannis and Melisandre are stand-ins, right? They're placeholders. They're like Targaryen cosplayers casting magic missile at the darkness. (laughs) This is all a ritual. It all happened before. It all will happen again. The wheel is time and it cannot be broken. And yeah, Davos is definitely right to resist Melisandre's atrocities. I'm not trying to say he's so hypocritical that he shouldn't be doing any of this, but George doesn't frame the faith side of things, the faith of the seven side of things as being like pure and noble, sullied by the uniquely awful followers of R'hllor. Like, above all, this scene is about uh, transformation, right? It's about seven into R'hllor, Stannis into Azora High, a political cause into a religious one. But all Davos sees is destruction. He just sees ash left behind, nothing new. And you can see both those perspectives as being important. Like, initially, the drawing of Lightbringer is very dramatic, and Melisandre's ceremony is impressive, and it does seem like, oh, everything is orbiting around this moment. But as you say, Jeff, it quickly turns to comedy. Is like <laughs> Stannis is just, like, grumpy and doesn't want to be there. He's cursing and beating at the flames. I really want to know what curses he used. Like, I really... Just like, you know, Melisandre's singing in the Shai and they're standing going, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> the flaw in Melisandre's stage management is the centerpiece, Stannis himself. As he admits in The Storm of Swords, both Robert and Renly would have a far easier time getting everyone behind them to save the world. Whether or not they would do it is a different question, but he knows they'd have an easier time of it, and so he feels like R'hllor should have chosen them. And that's sympathetic, given that Stannis does eventually try to do the job anyway. That's kind of where his arc is headed, as Frank was alluding to earlier. But it's not manifesting that way now. Like, Stannis is not trying to be a better charismatic warrior king, nor is he really giving it all for this new apocalyptic model. He's convinced that he's always going to be rejected, so he promptly resents that projected rejection and acts like it's already happened. Like, he undercuts this entire ceremony with his brusque, impatient attitude, like he just wants to go home. Melisandre is trying to make this resonate, feel like, again, a point in space-time around which the fortunes of all orbit, and Stannis just will not stick to the goddamn script. Like, for all the somber, tragic themes in his story that we all three of us love so much, 
the concept of Stannis as a character is a joke on him. This this secondary character who knows it at some level being thrust into the position of protagonist. And so, yeah, as, as Frank said, Davos presciently notes that Lightbringer, quote unquote, looks like crap. It does not look like the kind of thing with which you save the world and become the protagonist. So we are being shown both the image and the reality. Shadow puppet and shadow caster. It's this vivid red curtain and then the bleak burnt reality behind it and all that ties into the central ambiguity of Stannis's character that we've talked about before the big question of this scene are we witnessing the rise of the hero or the rise of the villain like Davos has to keep reminding himself why he's backing Stannis everything I am I owe to him he has earned my loyalty had I stayed a smuggler Allard would have ended on the wall and on the one hand these are affirmative statements that are running down the best in Stannis George wants us to keep these things in mind <laughs> But the very reason that Stan is, that Davos is saying these things to himself is because he's starting to doubt, because he needs reminders of what his service is for. As he says, his family's fortunes rest on Stannis's rise, because to borrow from Bruce Bolton, there are pardons for the likes of Stannis Baratheon, but not the likes of Davos Seaworth. Uniquely among these nobles, Davos is unlikely to be confirmed in his power and position by another king winning this war. And only Stannis will keep him safe. Only Stannis will protect his family and keep him at the table. But at the same time, he can't help but feel affronted by what's going on here. So you get that conflict. He wonders if this is the price of loyalty. Should I speak the words as well? Davos wondered. Do I owe Stannis that much? Is this fiery god truly his own? His shortened fingers twitched. Like Jeff said, connecting it to John when he clenches and opens his hand in a moment of great indecision. And that's how we're starting off Davos's arc, by questioning his loyalties and seeing him in this moment of indecision. Yeah, Davos in many ways is attempting to do what Varys told Tyrion. The storms come and go, the mm. waves crash overhead, the big fish eat the little fish, and I keep on paddling. Davos is, as befitting a lifelong singular, actually just as good at this paddling as Varys. But whereas Varys knows when to batten down the hatches and go to ground, like at the end of the storm, Davos knows that sometimes the best way to beat a storm is to sail right through it, which is precisely what he does in storm but about that yeah (laughs) who knew uh but as any good sailor knows you have to know exactly what kind of storm you're dealing with before you plunge headlong into it and that's why davos's powers of observation are so critical to his success as a character and so enjoyable for us as readers he's not just trying to read the room so he doesn't say something that gets him killed he's also trying to figure out who can I say this to and what are the best things for me to say to Stannis so that I keep rising with him? We see through Davos the beginning of the Kingsmen and Queensmen split. He cor- correctly assesses who is where, who will wind up where, and squirrels that information away so that by the time Pylos tells him outright that he's always had these skills, he goes, huh. And then he uses them to the fullest <laughs> extent in putting together his Ocean's <laughs> Eleven heist of Edric Storm. So even as Davos reminds his sons to remember where they are, he's not just chiding them to shut up, although he is because he's a parent. He's telling them to read (laughs) the fucking room, something he excels at despite constantly thinking he can't. He knows when to stay silent, but he also knows when to speak up. And it's a damn good thing he does. It's not an understatement to say that Davos's willingness to speak truth to power will literally save Westeros. Bold statement, but one that I agree with. I think, you know, when Davos is looking, though, for an outlet to actually speak, 
he doesn't go to Celticar, Valerian, or Bar-Eman. He doesn't go to Selyse. He doesn't go to Velisandra. He doesn't really go to his sons either. He he them tells them to guard their tongues. Well, I mean, fuck them kids. But I mean, like, you know, it's it, he, he tells them to guard their tongues because they're around the king and they need to learn how to speak to a king. But when he's looking for an outlet, he goes to yet another outsider, which I think is a fascinating choice on Davos's part and on George's part, too. And it does a really good job on a, on multiple levels. On one hand, it's showing Davos in an outsider status. It's also showing Davos as kind of his cagiest and kind of his canniest, especially in that end scene. But more importantly than that, it's also helping to introduce one of my favorite minor characters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Salador, Admiral. Admiral, he will be an Admiral in, in, by, by the time of Storm Swords. Admiral Salador San. Yes, Salador San. So Davos himself starts off as mostly just a supporting character in Stannis' story, but the most prominent supporting character in his story is Salador San. As with his sons, who see only the ship and blind themselves to the onion, Salador represents one side of Davos' identity struggle, the other side, the smuggler side. He feels completely out of place in Stannis' camp, which is kind of the point. As he notes, everyone else is just grimly devout and no one else talks so openly or eats and drinks so indulgently. If anything, Salador would make more sense in Renly's camp, mm-hmm. but with his flamboyance and his love of fruit. I mean, Renly would probably welcome a fleet at the moment, given that Cersei's preventing him from drawing on the red ones. Renly's all about the bright colors, just look at the rainbow guard, and lo and behold, Sala mentions his ship Bird of a Thousand Colors in this scene. They get along great. I think, really, compare what Sala says to Davos here about, are you sure you will not have a grape? And he dangled the grape before Davos and smiled. It's ale I need and news. The men of Westeros are ever rushing. What good is this, I ask you? He who hurries through life hurries to his grave, and he belches. And compare that to what Renly says to Stannis at Storm's End. It's, it's practically identical. Would you like one, brother? Renly asked, smiling. From Highgarden. You've never tasted anything so sweet, I promise you. He took a bite. Juice ran from the corner of his mouth. I did not come here to eat fruit, Stannis was fuming. <laughs> A man should never refuse to taste a peach. He may never get the chance again. Life is short, Stannis. Remember what the Starks say. Winter is coming. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. Really strong parallel, I think. So the question becomes, why is Sala on Dragonstone, of all places? Because Davos, his old friend, recruited him. And this is Davos's material contribution to Stannis' cause. And it's honestly more than anyone else bothered to muster. And yet it wins him no acclaim among his peers. And that's because the only reason Davos was able to win over Sala is his connections from his smuggling days. That just isolates him further instead of raising him up. It just reminds all of Stannis' noble-born vassals that Davos, quote, stank like fish and onions. He's as much an outsider as Salador, even if he doesn't flaunt it as much. He, He feels like he really can't win playing their game at a certain point. And Sala is someone who won the game playing his own. When a pirate grows rich enough, they make him a prince, as Davos says kind of bitterly about Sala. Because it's like Sala pulled an end around on him. Like Sala moved up, not through assimilation, to the pure, dutiful image of feudal power a la Davos, but by his mastery of the more muddled and corrupted reality that allows him to live in the gray areas. Like, to compare it to the wildlings, Davos is like Mance, right? He's able to blend in anywhere. He hides this uncommon heart and mind behind a common appearance. And Sal is more like Torment. He's deliberately standing out and exemplifying the most over-the-top tendencies of his culture. Yeah, and if, if Davos separates himself by spurning ostentatious and flamboyant trappings, much like his grace, then every drop of flamboyance that was absent from Davos and Stannis is poured wholesale into my man Salador. But note Martin's subtle subversion of a fantasy trope, which he loves doing. While some pompous and flamboyant characters, the armorer who snivels at Tyrion's chain, Janos Slint, all of the Florence—God, do we ever just hate the Florence— 
all of them are basically useless, if not actively harmful to their respective causes. Causes, and in the Florence case, they're actively harmful to Stannis's cause, both secular and metaphysical. But Salador San got his flamboyance by being well traveled, so he not only knows the mythology Mel and Stannis are trying to invoke, he knows why it's wrong. As Clint, a full fledged lawyer instead of the training wheel version you guys have here, <laughs> he could have told you last week it often takes more knowledge to correct an argument than to make one. And here, Salador knows so much about this culture that Mel's importing, he can spot the spot the flaws. Salise can't, the Queen's men can't, and Stannis won't. I think it's an excellent point. I think, you know, Salador San, as as a character, represents an aspect of, of Davos that Davos, Davos would kind of like to forget, like the kind of criminal side. You know, Davos will remember it, obviously, but he would rather kind of put it in his past and be a loyal Stannerman, even though he's going to be, his loyalty is going to be proven by his ability to question the king. Seldor San, you know, he talks himself being an honest man. And yeah, we're all like, yeah, we could dismiss that. But he's, he actually is pretty honest. He's, he's very similar to Davos in his, in his ability to be honest to people in positions of power. The, the problem is, is that Seldor San can't, can't breach that kind of hard exterior that Stannis has. And I think part of it is, is a cultural a, a cultural difference between the two. Perhaps there's a difference in language as well. Salrasan speaks very colorfully, and Stannis is very much is very much communicating the way the soldiers communicate. It's often talked about that Stannis like spits words out or like kind of bites them off as he's he's talking the same way, and his, his mouth was made for giving commands, as as Crescent as Crescent noted in the Clash Kings prologue. But I think like. The, I love the point you're making, though, about how he is able to be like, OK, so you saw this ritual on the beach. But let me tell you, like, the backstory behind this. Like, you are a stupid Westerosi. It's fine. You understand culture. I've been all over the world. Let me tell you what this is actually all about. And it's important that Salador San is there to present the real legend behind the ritual that Melisandre is presenting on the beach because it helps to not just contour our perspective in terms of world building, but helps to contour our perspective of what this will likely mean for the future of Stannis and Davos's arc, especially in, at the Blackwater and especially in the sacrifice of Shireen. It's a line that Salador doesn't want to cross. Again, like Tormund, he's not exactly dead set on doing the right thing, but he still has a lot of decency in him, and he has this dislike for, for bullies and conquerors of all stripes. And just as the wildlings know more about the others than the Night's Watch, yeah, Salador just understands Azor High, that whole legend, what it means, better than anyone else on Dragonstone. Again, we'll get more into the specifics later on in the episode, but it's worth noting that Sala is presenting this cautionary tale at all. Davos notes the abrupt shift in the conversation that suddenly they're talking about Lightbringer and Azor Ahai because Sala wants to bring this up. He's trying to warn his old friend that, hey, this coalition that I'm kind of part of and you're deeply part of is headed in a dangerous direction. Mm -hmm. We better hope Stannis bores of this whole narrative quickly. And he's worried that Davos is in too deep to deal with that. That when Davos says King Stannis is my god, it's not just a politic thing to say in the moment. He means it. And Salah thinks you, you, you can't tie yourself too closely if, if they're really taking this path. So these, these are the stakes. We see them set up so clearly that Davos is, he's hinging it all on his lord self, his, his climbing ambitions as part of Stannis's coalition for his family's sake to, to keep them safe in the future. But his smuggler self, as embodied by Salador San, is, is warning him of where all this is headed, that he might be getting them in more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, Davos, again, doesn't know enough to weigh Melisandre's burning of the Seven against his Palador. His pal Palador, Palador, that's Palador. great. He's like a paladin, <laughs> he's your pal, and he's Salador. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Salador is Davos's Palador. This works perfectly. So, he, But he doesn't know enough to against the critique of it. All he has 
is this mute protest in his bones that what Mel is doing can't possibly be right. But Davos squashes that feeling because speaking out risks himself, his sons, and all he's gained at the cost of his finger bones. And more than that, it's it's not just his finger bones. They are a representative of what Davos has given up. It's a measure of independence, of being beholden to the law. Yeah, he's gained a lot, but there's a certain measure of independence that he had for himself and his family that he's lost. Because, like he said, he is tied to Stannis. If Stannis loses, he is fucked. And so, whereas if he was a smuggler, you can play both sides. You can go wherever you want. You can, you know, when things aren't going the way you want, like Salador will eventually do in Dance, you can just leave. And Davos can't do that. So, when Davos realizes that no, his best services involve giving voice to that mute protest is when he truly comes into his own, not just as Stannis' true and honest liege man, but as a lord and a truly just man in his own right. One of the ways that we closed, we closed out this episode itself in terms of uh, of the things that we're covering is we have Salador Hassan, like noticing that, that Davos is talking about R'hllor as Stannis' god, right? He's he's picking up on these things and Davos he's like oh you're you, it's not your god Davos what, what's up with that man and Davos has to make the the conclusion that he's going to be kind of cagey and, and crafty and he responds like Stannis is my god he raised me up and put and did all these wonderful things for me and I think that's really important at the same time though you know it's an interesting parallel to Stannis Baratheon himself who is consistently questioning R'hllor and why R'hllor chose him Davos is making Stannis out to be his god, and Davos is going to play the consistent role in Stannis' story, and in his own story for that matter, of questioning his god, questioning Stannis, and whether this god, his god is worthy of the service that he's offering to him throughout this narrative. Well said, sir. So I think that just about wraps us up for the depth section of this episode. Again, we're going to come back next week for Stannis' letter, his relationship with Davos, and the final monologue regarding the Wind Proud and Proud Wing. But we're going to shift into foreshadowing and groundwork for this episode now. Oh, yeah. So in the synopsis itself, I talked about this line, many and more would burn before this war was done. Oh, man, Davos. Like, it's, it's almost as if George R. R. Martin knew what was going to happen to Davos when he wrote this chapter. You think that's a possibility that, you know, George was kind of cued in as to what Davos's end game in this, and at least in Clash of Kings would be? I think he had an idea of what Davos 3 was going to look like when he was writing Davos 1, for sure, in terms of the, the, the jade wildfire explosion that instantly claims Davos' ship and his crew and four of his sons. He was more right than he knew when he said they would burn. Sigh. <laughs> Speaking of the Battle of Blackwater, Patchface sees it coming as he he calls out while Sanus is coming forward to fetch quote-unquote Lightbringer. Under the sea, smoke rises in bubbles and flames burn green and blue and black. And of course, we will see a dramatic incarnation of that when Stannis' forces meet the Lannisters' forces at the Battle of Blackwater. I love Patchface's presence here. As we said in the prologue, he's kind of undercutting Stannis and Melisandre's pretensions by being a much more uh, direct angle on prophecy than, than Melisandre ever is and kind of calling out how poorly this is going to go right underneath their noses. And uh, it to that, lends to that comedic feeling we were talking about that Patchface has this kind of Monty Python aesthetic that really is very different from the kind of grandiose and, and gloomy, grimdark aesthetic Melisandre is trying to put on. Patchface is, is George's way of kind of elbowing the reader in the ribs and saying, yeah, they don't have exactly the right angle on what's happening here. Yeah. Speaking of the flames, blue, green, and black, it's it's really, I think one of the reasons all of us here and so many in the fandom love the episode of Blackwater on this TV show is because it arguably catches the aesthetic that George is hinting at here and that George will obviously portray in Tyrion's chapter and especially in Davos 3, that the, mm-hmm. the image of the green flames and how they execute it was just so well done. And obviously I have great source material, but yeah. 
Patchface, man, he's fucking weirds me out. Like, like in a series that has Euron, <laughs> Patchface might still be fucking weirder. It's just, yeah. But anyway, I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't say, couldn't have said it better. Yeah, I agree. The Patchface is weird, and I think it's only like until it's only when we get to a Dance of Dragons that finally like, Melisandre's like cueing us in. It's like, hey, wait a minute, this guy, like, he's been saying these kind of cryptic things, and all of a sudden, like, these things are kind of turning out true in a weird way. So when she, when she's talking about how he's, she's seen him in her, in her flames, and she's seeing only like terrible things coming from this guy. Like, so you're like, okay, yeah, this guy is weird, and hopefully he doesn't pretend to some really terrible, truly horrible stuff that some people have theorized when have skulls ever pretended anything bad never once no, no, never once so a little bit more about uh some minor characters we see in this chapter we got lord gunster sunglass and the ram rampton men who will return to the narrative when davos returns to dragonstone to storm of swords and learns um sorry to say this uh davos but those guys who might have been your friends in restoring the faith of the seven yeah, they might have accidentally gotten sacrificed to uh, Relor. Actually, not accidentally at all. They were totally sacrificed by Melisandre and Solis while, while Stannis was off fighting on the Blackwater. They tripped. Exactly. They tripped and fell into the flames. <laughs> you, can, you can tell George is keeping them in his, his back pocket here because he doesn't have Stannis execute them or even mention executing them. So I, I think probably he had in mind at this point, these are going to be my first uh, direct human sacrifices for Team Dragonstone. Yeah. And then we get this great line from uh, Salador, uh, the lord of Casterly Lock has sent his dwarf to see to King's Landing. Perhaps he hopes that his ugly face will frighten off attackers, eh? Or that we will laugh ourselves dead when the imp capers on the battlements. Who can say? Well, people will indeed die when Tyrion gets up to do his performance at the Blackwater, Salador. Great call on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. They all. No one takes Tyrion seriously until he seriously starts wrecking stuff, and then no one except Garland Terrell gives him any credit for it afterwards. Oh, poor, poor Tyrion. No, no credit uh, for our main characters in this series. Uh, but more ominous for King's Landing than Tyrion wrecking shit there. The bells start ringling behind Stannis, and oh man, bells have never pretended anything super ominous in this series, have they? No. <laughs> That's it. That's all we need for that point. Just no. Bells are never ominous. Again, all the signs and signifiers of doom that Stannis and Melisandre don't have quite a handle on things and it's all going to go wrong and this this chapter is chapter is full of that sense of dread as that tipping point gets approached they can't they, they can't put it into words just yet because they don't have even the information we have let alone complete information of the author but there's already the sign speaking of signs and portents and prophecy and all those sort of things there's been a glaring omission in terms of what we've been talking about so far in this episode and that is the story that Salador San tells Davos about Azor Ahai, the original Azor Ahai, the OG Azor Ahai, as they say, and Lightbringer. And I guess, like, the question that I have for you, you gentlemen, as as I am less inclined to the kind of legendary, prophetic, and mystical, magical side of the story is Azor Ahai. Like, why the fuck should I care about this guy? And why should I care about some sort of flaming sword? I mean, is it is it really all that important? Or is it something that we should be, you know, kind of more attuned to, especially knowing some of the end states of the characters in mind and knowing that sometimes those legendary things that are happening in the backstory and in the margins of the story do have a direct impact on the story itself? Since we didn't read it out during the synopsis, I'm just going to read the passage in question here before we discuss it. Do you know the tale of the forging of Lightbringer? I shall tell it to you. It was a time when darkness lay heavy on the world. To oppose it, the hero must have a hero's blade, oh, like none that had ever been. And so for thirty days and thirty nights, Azor Ahai labored sleepless in the temple, forging a blade in the sacred fires. Heat and hammer in fold, heat and hammer in fold, oh yes, until the sword was done. Yet when he plunged it into water, the temper of the steel it burst asunder. 
Being a hero, it was not for him to shrug and go in search of excellent grapes such as these. So again he began. The second time it took him fifty days and fifty nights, and this sword seemed even finer than the first. Azorahai captured a lion to temper the blade by plunging it through the beast's red heart, but once more the steel shuddered and split. Great was his woe and great was his sorrow then, for he knew what he must do. A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as it glowed white-hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nissa, Nissa, he said to her, for that was her name. Bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why I cannot say, and Azorahai thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. Now do you see my meaning? Be glad that it is just a burnt sword that his grace pulled from that fire. Too much light can hurt the eyes, my friend, and fire burns. So Frank, what do you what do you make of that story on the whole and what we should take away from it? Obviously a lot of people have gone down theorizing paths on this before, but what's what's your, you know, uh, galaxy brain takeaway from the story of Azora High and Lightbringer? Azora who and Diabringer? Uh, <laughs> yes, all right. there, Yeah, yeah, there's no deal and no one should care. Th- thanks for listening to the Nauticast <laughs> podcast. You can find them on patreon.com forward slash Nauticast ASOIF. Oh, y'all met in the books. All right. Uh, I was talking about the show just now. I mean, in terms of mythology, it's a very compelling narrative. And what George does here is pull a sort of biblical flood move. There's evidence in many cultures, not just the Christian Bible, describing a sort of great flood in ancient times. There's obviously some pseudoscience involved here, and these cultures are most likely not describing the same event. But a great flood or deluge myth does exist in many, many disparate cultures. So some more daring people argue it's evidence that the biblical flood actually happened. Regardless, the cultures all talk about it and have some commonalities which are interesting. But with Azor Ahai, it's far more specific across these disparate cultures because, well, Martin's not beholden to such silly and vexatious notions as geology, paleontology, biology, and time. (laughs) On Planetos, every culture appears to have some version of this Azor Ahai figure, and he's connected to throwing back some form of the Long Night. Look at how the world of ice and fire talks about the long night after briefly talking about differing myths. Quote, the fact that some cladicalism took place many thousands of years ago remains certain, unquote. In Westeros, you could easily connect Azor Ahai with the tale of the last heroes, which you guys have covered previously. For the different cultures, we have the Roinar. According to these tales, the t- return of the sun came only when a hero convinced Mother Roin's many children, lesser gods, such as the Crab King and the Old Man of the River, to put aside their bickering and join together to sing a secret song that brought back the day. For the Z- Ashai-E, which Mel is clearly drawing from, it is also written that there are annals in Ashai of such darkness, of a hero who fought against it with a red sword. In Far E.T., you have the ancient Chinese analog, which says, quote, A curious legend from E.T., which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something none could discover, and that disaster was only averted by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail. So really what this means is that Mel done fucked up by trying to give Stannis a red sword, and should have, instead, turned him into a woman and given him a monkey's tail. I think that's great. Exactly. Less jokingly, even in E.T., that's not the only legend regarding this particular figure. Quote, how long the darkness endured, no man can say, but all agree that it was only when a great warrior, known variously as Harukin the Hero, Azor Ahai, Yintar, Nefarion, and Eldric Shadow Chaser, arose to give courage to the race of men and lead the virtuous into battle with his blazing sword Lightbringer that the darkness was put to rout. 
This is the hero of a thousand faces, which George is clearly aware of invoking, but adapted to fit the various cultures of Plantos. And this is what makes Mel's vision so seductive. We all know, and at some intuitive level, like some version of this story, especially if we're that last hero. The thing is, though, what do you do when the survival of millions rests on you actually being that hero? And can you trust the myth to guide you to what you should do? As everyone has pointed out, dozens of characters in the Song of Ice and Fire have acted out this part or that part of the Azor Ahai and this and this at Lightbringer myth. And I think what's being suggested there is not it's all of them or it's none of them, but that the myth is completely pliable as far as the morality of your actions are concerned. Like the capital C classic hero is an image of power and wonder and lore. It's not necessarily a superhero in the sense of a role model you'd want to show your kids. The archetype can apply to characters as different in their actions and beliefs as Davos Seaworth and Daenerys Targaryen and Euron Greyjoy, because <laughs> that's how archetypes work. They're not actually instructive. You shouldn't venerate them as rules for life, but their power is real, and you might find yourself reenacting them without even realizing it. That's the whole idea of collective unconsciousness and tropes crossing cultures, and Frank is right. We're seeing that play out in the world of Ice and Fire. Azor Ahai is both hero and villain, depending on how you frame it, on how you write his character, including in-universe. And the truly relevant takeaway in terms of Team Dragonstone, I think, is that Melisandre has conveniently left the Nissa Nissa part out. <laughs> Davos had to learn this from Salador, and had this conversation not occurred, the Red Woman would have effectively silenced the truth of her narrative on Dragonstone. And I mean truth, not in terms of whether the Nissa Nissa stuff happened, or whether it went exactly like that, who knows, but in terms of how she's writing it and what she's leading Stannis towards. I think George's focus here is more on... The reification of myth, the contact point between the, the present and the past and the future, more than he is journeying back to the murky origins to find out exactly what happened, if that makes sense. Davos is later going to reflect on the story that Salador San tells him in this chapter from A Clash of Kings, Davos 1. He, he reflects on it in, in Storm of Swords, Davos 5, where they re, where he's starting to learn how to read and he reads the letter from Maester Aemon warning about the coming of Vance Raider and what's going on there. And then he makes this really curious observation, and he's thinking to himself. He says, uh, Maester Pilas asks him, my lord, are you unwell? And Davos thinks, I am frightened, Maester, he might have said. Davos was remembering a tale Salador San had told him of how Azor Ahai tempered Lightbringer by thrusting it through the heart of the wife he had loved. He slew his wife to fight the dark. If Stannis' Azor Ahai come again, does that mean that Edric Storm must play the part of Nissa Nissa? I mean, the the question here in, in my mind and in Davos's mind is that it, does he have to save this child in order to prevent Stannis from becoming the Azor High figure that he knows is actually a, a bad guy, that he knows is, you know, the guy that he knows the final outcome of the story, that the, the sword is plunged through the heart of Nissa Nissa. He envisions it as potentially Edric Storm, as we're going to find out probably in the Winds of Winter, maybe a Dream of Spring, it's going to be Shireen Baratheon that he's going to be plunging the sort of fire through. I think it's interesting, too, in that that same takeaway, like it's Stannis' best act, right? Going north to the Wall to save the save the Night's Watch and save the North from invasion from Mance Raider and the Wildlings. But it's in that context that Davos is kind of like clicking on his mind that this is the legendary side of Azor High is now being brought to real life. And this is what it actually means. It means fighting the others. But in fighting the others and being the hero of the story, does that mean sacrificing those that you love most? Does it mean sacrificing his sons in the Blackwater? Does it mean Stannis sacrificing Shireen to the fires? Ultimately, yes, that's the end state of Stannis' story. Hopefully it's not the end state of Davos' story. I think we can all agree there. 
So I think that about closes out for this this very happy chapter and very happy end state discussion for Clash Kings Davos 1. Thank you guys so much always for listening. It's it's a real pleasure doing these episodes too and I feel like we're really getting into the meat of a Clash of Kings and it's only going to pick up in pace, excitement and all these all the wonderful things we bring to the fore coming forward. And you know, thank you so much to Frank for joining us. Like it's uh it's amazing having you on here to talk about Stannis and you know having uh having you guys argue at the beginning of this episode. That was a lot of fun for me just kind of sitting back here listening enjoying this nice cup of water they have next to me right now. That pure cup of water that Stannis would offer you, maybe with a pinch of salt. Uh, yeah, there's more than salt in there. <laughs> <laughs> well said, sir. Yeah, uh, no, thank you guys very much for allowing me to be on the episode talking about my favorite chapter and all of the Song of Ice and Fire and all of fiction, really, and um, <laughs> just looking forward to next week. Oh, man, it's going to be a lot of fun. Where can we find your stuff on social media and other places that you do your writing and stuff like that? Yeah, well, coming, you know, behind Atwell and then Clint, it's kind of meager offerings. I do have a couple posts as Sir Donald Peasbury on Reddit. Uh, my official Twitter account is just my name, Frank Bum. It is football season, so if you all follow me for A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, maybe avoid Saturdays and Sundays or just mute me <laughs> until football season's over. Perfectly reasonable to do in this case. Done. Already done. <laughs> So thank you. Thank you so much, Frank, for joining us. It's been a lot of fun doing this. It'll be a lot of fun doing this next week. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire. WordPress.com. We want to shout out and thank you, our high lords and ladies on Patreon Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorsadelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybold, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Thank you, High Lords and Ladies, very much. It's a pleasure interacting with you all on the Slack and elsewhere. So, join us next week as we do a Clash of Kings Davos 1 again with Frank as he returns to discuss the rest of the chapter all about Stannis' relationship with Davos, their discussion of his letter to the public declaring himself king, and his monologue about the wind prowl and proud wing. Air horns. So thank you everyone for listening, and we will see you guys next week.